You ever have someone ask you the question, uh, it's a terrible question, uh, what are you thinking about? You're like, you're in a conversation with them for a few minutes, and then they're like, what are you thinking about right now? And I'm like, oh, I either lie to them and tell them, oh, nothing, or I just fess up and be like, I was not paying attention to a word you were saying. I have no clue what you've been rambling on for the last 10 minutes. You ever have someone ask you that question, wives, you've ever asked your husband, uh, honey, what are you thinking about right now? Probably not a good question to ask, but uh, sometimes it's a hard question when someone actually asks you uh, that question, what are you thinking about? Jesus starts off this section with a what are you thinking about question. In verse 17, it just says this. I'll give you three words. It says, do not think. Okay, so Jesus has already been doing some teaching here. Uh, He's already taught on the Beatitudes. Uh, the last week we, we talked about what it means to be a person who has influence, has impact on community and culture to make a difference in the world by being a different person. So Jesus has already been teaching some pretty powerful things. Uh, the, the Beatitudes, this is a blessed life. So Jesus laid out for the people listening, which would have been thousands, this is what it means to be blessed of God, approved of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, who meek, who hunger and thirst, are merciful, pure, peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Okay, this would have flipped the idea of what a blessed life looked like upside down. And then Jesus goes on to look at a very non-influential group, uh, kind of the marginalized people, and says, you guys are the salt of the earth. You are the light of meaning you will make a difference in this world. It's not the rich and the famous, and it's you. Because of me at work in your life, you will make a difference in this world. So if you're hearing that for the very first time, what do you think you would be thinking about? Like this was, if you've heard this story before of the Sermon on the Mount, as best you can, erase some of those things and just say, man, if I would be hearing this for the very first time, what would I actually be thinking about? You might ask yourself just questions of, wow, who is this guy Jesus? Is what he's actually saying, is it true? I mean, the list of questions probably would go on and on, but if you were a first century Jewish person, which that's who Jesus' audience largely was, they would not only be thinking about everything that Jesus was saying, they would be thinking about what Jesus wasn't saying. Okay, We don't typically think about what Jesus didn't say. We're just focused on, well, this is what Jesus said. They would have been honing in on, well, what about this, Jesus? You have to keep in mind, this, this community, this culture, they were so immersed in Old Testament, in, in the law, and Jesus has not even spoken of anything of Pharisees and scribes and observing the law. So there would have been people who are asking the question, is he like teaching or telling us that we can ignore the Old Testament now? Like nullify it? Like it's, it's not that important? Like do we not have to pay attention to the rules and regulations of the Old Testament? Is that what this guy Jesus is saying? Jesus begins Matthew 5 verse 17 with this, do not think. And so I want to challenge you, whatever you may have been thinking, maybe hear what Jesus is going to tell us and do not think like this, 
but know this. And I'll go on uh, with the verse. Actually, let me, if, uh, if I can, I'm going to read um, the whole four verses that we're, we're walking through today. Uh, so if you have a Bible, open up to Matthew 5. If you don't, uh, that's okay. Just listen to uh, as I'm going through. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. And this is a very, teachers don't talk like this. Jesus boldly says, I'm telling you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of these, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness, this is a hard verse. They only got to hear it once. There wasn't probably like, can you repeat that? Let's try this again, where we get to do. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? This is a pretty difficult text. Just four verses, but incredibly challenging not only to us, but to the first century uh, audience as well. Jesus is going to make one thing crystal clear, what his relationship to the law is. If you're not familiar with the law, the law is the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. And in the first five books of the Bible, typically if someone's really eager to read the scriptures, they start in Genesis, and they make it through Genesis. A lot of stories in there, power, like awesome stories. Then they get into Exodus and like, huh, this is getting a little bit dry. And then they, they die in Leviticus. Usually around like chapter 2 or 3, because it's like, oh my goodness. I, what am I supposed to make of all of these requirements and all of these restrictions? So Jesus is saying, he's talking about his relationship that he has, ultimately that we also have with the law, and he ties it into the prophets as well. So he mentions the law as well as the prophets. That's Jesus' way of saying the totality of the Old Testament. So he's telling them about the Old Testament the law as well, of, uh, as, well as uh, the prophets. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered what your relationship with the Old Testament should look like? Meaning, what do you do with the Old Testament? Uh, lots of great stories, as I just mentioned, a bunch in Genesis. But are you supposed to actually pay attention to all of the Old Testament rules and regulations and laws. Anyone ever wonder, like, okay, was that totally just for them, and I just don't have to pay attention to this? I remember my very first job interview, I was working at a church. I was applying to go work at a church as a youth pastor, and um, I didn't dress up much better then either, and so I had shorts and a t-shirt on at uh, my interview, and uh, this was where I got to meet all of the youth. And so one of the, the youth, they're like, so, I see that you have a tattoo on your ankle. I was like, well, that's actually a Sharpie magic marker. And they're like, don't lie to us. I was like, all right, it's a tattoo. You caught me. And uh, this is like a 12, 13-year-old individual. And uh, they were like, well, according to Leviticus 18, 
uh, it mentions that you are not supposed to have uh, tattoos, not supposed to tattoo yourself, mark yourselves for the dead or tattoo yourselves. So how do you justify having a tattoo? And I was like, is your parent here? Can you get them out of the room right now? I don't even know what I said. I, to be on, honest with you, that was when I was 23, 24 years old. Uh, and I was like, wow, um, hmm, that's a great question. What, what, do, you, what do you think? That's, when you don't know what to say, you always just turn the question around, and then they feel really empowered and smart and like, well, let me tell you. Anyways, have you ever wondered what you're supposed to do with the Old Testament? Not the stories, but the, the laws, the regulations. And the key to answering that question is right here in this one verse, Matthew 5, verse 17. Uh, this is a huge question of what we're supposed to do with the Old Testament. If you just disregard and say, well, I'm a New Testament type of guy, New Testament type of woman, you've just chopped off 70% of your Bible. So I'm somehow thinking that's probably not the best advice is just to completely ignore it and be like, I'm going to camp out only in the New Testament. And it's very interesting in the New Testament, um, you can write these references down if you want, but the New Testament says things like we have freedom from the law. That's in Galatians 5. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says we are dead to the law. In Romans chapter 10, Paul even says Christ is the end of the law. And even in the New Testament church, they started to move beyond uh, certain uh, restrictions clearly laid out in the law related to food. So in Acts chapter 11, they have a barbecue, red meat, that steaks. I'm very happy with Acts chapter 11, but there was Old Testament regulations about meat and what you could eat and could not eat, but the New Testament church um, began uh, abandoning some of those practices. So I'm setting this up for a really big question. What do you do with the Old Testament? And the answer is ultimately found in what Jesus did with the Old Testament. He gives, he says three things in this one verse. He says, I have come. All right, have you ever introduced yourself to someone like that? Like who talks like that? Who says, I have come? Well, Jesus, because Jesus was a missionary. Jesus was one sent by God, sent of God on a mission. And so he's making a declarative statement here is, I have come. And then he makes clear, I have not come to abolish or kill or get rid of the law. So when he says, I have not come to abolish the law, you know what that means for us? The Old Testament's still in play. If Jesus did not come to abolish the law, that means we still need to think through and pay attention to the Old Testament. And then thirdly, he says this, and this is phenomenal. I have come to fulfill the entire law, the entire Old Testament. Jesus didn't say, I've you know, come just to be obedient or to uphold the law. You know who did that? The Pharisees. They tried to be obedient to the law. Jesus was obedient to the law, but Jesus makes a powerful statement and says, I have come to fulfill the entire law. We didn't look at this, but when Jesus went through his get-drenched service, when he was baptized, he says in Matthew 3.15, when John's trying to tell him, I can't baptize you, Jesus responds to, to John and says, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. 
So Jesus didn't come to observe the Old Testament law. He didn't come just to be obedient to the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill the Old Testament law. So we have a choice. This is our choice. We can either relate to the Old Testament like the Pharisees did, meaning that they were obedient to uphold the law. And the hard thing about that is they saw the law as a burden. They looked at the Old Testament as a burden that they just had to live with, that they had to bear, uh, as it were. So that's option one. Or I can relate to Jesus, the one who fulfilled the entire law. I vote for option two. As I understand the Old Testament, I want to be in relationship with the one who fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. Rather than living trying to uh, uphold the law, Pharisees, I want to be in relationship with the one who fulfilled the law. Uh, Paul said this like 30 years after this teaching, but he says in Romans chapter 3, Do we then nullify the law by this faith? People were asking the question, we have faith in Jesus. What do we need the law for anymore? Why pay attention to the Old Testament? Who needs it? Who cares? We got Jesus. And that's how a lot of Christians think. We got Jesus. We got grace. Who cares about the Old Testament? It makes no sense. It's not relevant to me, to my life. That's what the early church was thinking. That's what a lot of us think. And Paul says this, not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. So Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law, teaches us rightly what it looks like to uphold the law. The only way I understand how to uphold the law, as Paul is talking about, is to, to know Jesus, to be in relationship with Jesus. Jesus did a lot of teaching, okay? I'm breaking this up in chunks. So next week, if you come back, uh, we're going to hear a message called, I Hate You. Okay? That's the title of the message for next week. Jesus is going to play out the difference of just being obedient to the law and actually upholding what the heart of the law is. I'll give you a preview. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But if you have hate in your heart, you've, you're a murderer. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But if you lust, you've already committed adultery. So Jesus, in the next few weeks, is going to explain what it means for us to actually not only be obedient, but to uphold the heart of the law. And Jesus is going to uh, teach on that. So I love in this one verse, he makes very clear why he came. And he came to fulfill all of the Old, Old Testament. Anyone remember one of the things, last things that Jesus said on the cross? It's finished. Like, how could he say that? It's because everything that was required in the law, he met completely. It is completely, totally, absolutely fulfilled in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. If you want to know how to understand the Old Testament, understand how we uphold the law rightly, you have to be in right relationship with Jesus. He goes on and says this, Matthew 5, 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, that's what he's talking about, then he switches to the Hebrew, not the least stroke of a pen, a yod, will, be any, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
So Jesus is making clear everything. What you think is big and what you typically pay attention to, that's important. But the little stuff, like the least stroke of a pen, Jesus validates that everything in the Old Testament is important. He is paying attention to absolutely everything big or small. Jesus says it's significant, the whole thing. He's fulfilling everything, not just big things, but everything. How important, you've been hearing me talk about Old Testament now, and I know some of you, it's, this is foreign. So let me ask a question. How important is the Old Testament scriptures to you? Show of hands, a little participation here. How many in here um, read at least one chapter in the Old Testament this week? All right? I don't, maybe half. Okay, that's, that's pretty good. To the other half, this is not like condemning you because you didn't read this particular week, but it's just the, the question of, I typically spend a lot more time in the New Testament. I mean, even if you look at me over the past three years of how much I've preached, I've preached one series in the book of Genesis. That's it. All of our other series have been very New Testament. I'm not, it's not sin. If you don't, didn't read the Old Testament, I'm not calling you a sinner, but I'm just asking the question, how much time do we actually spend in the Old Testament, typically, and maybe you use this argument before, is it doesn't make sense. It's absolutely, utterly confusing. Or you read it, and you get through some of those like chronologies, and you're like, oh, I'd rather read the phone book. <laughs> like we just have this, it just, I can't relate to the Old Testament. And so, because we can't relate, we typically avoid it. You ever seen a three-legged dog? Remember I saw my very first three-legged dog and uh, I was in a dog park with like 20, 25 other dogs. Uh, This is when I had a dog and I saw this dog. I was like, wow, poor little guy's only got three legs. He was like working his way around, wasn't as fast as the other dogs and he was, none of the other dogs hung out with him because he was a mutant or something. Like he just kind of did his thing hopping around on three legs. He made it, but he certainly wasn't as quick. He wasn't fast. He wasn't efficient. He still made it. I was thinking about that, uh, and I was like, you know, there's a lot of one-legged Christians, meaning we got like just, we operate kind of on one leg, meaning we hang out all the time in the New Testament. Again, this is not like a sinful issue. I myself, I want to be two-legged. I want to have both feet firmly planted in all of the scriptures. And in verse 18, Jesus is just validating everything in the Old Testament matters enough for him to fulfill fulfill it. Ask another question. What do you actually, what's the point of hanging out in the Old Testament? Okay, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but I just, I learn about God. Like, God reveals himself, his heart, his character throughout the Old Testament again and again. In the New Testament, we see that so clearly in Jesus, but I just learn about God's faithfulness, God's compassion, God's justice, his mercy. I just learn about God. And as I learn about who God is, my love for him grows. I want to know more of him. I love learning about people who walked with God. Like, I love reading about stories of people who just 
utterly failed. But God picked him back up and they learned how to walk again. Why? I can relate to that. I can identify with so many of the Old Testament people who were utterly failures. And God said, I still love you. Let's get you back up, dust you off, and keep walking with me. I can relate to that. And ultimately, I learn about Jesus. Because all of Scripture points to Jesus, but the New Testament will just not make sense to you if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. Like, it just won't make sense to you. As you read the New Testament and you're familiarizing yourself with the Old Testament, you're like, oh my goodness, that's what that's about? That's where that came from? I mean, the Old Testament just is, again and again, talking about Jesus, the Savior who will come, who will redeem. Bottom line, Jesus says the Old Testament, everything in it is important. He validates it, gives it authority. He fulfills it. My encouragement to you, to me, to us as a community is don't be one-legged. Have two legs firmly planted in the scriptures, the whole of the scriptures. Learn about God. Learn from God's people. And learn about what scripture has to say about Jesus. He goes on, verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, here's a really big question for you. And I I hope it lands, I hope it sticks, but the question is this, what do people learn by watching you? Okay, Jesus is is talking about anyone who breaks one of these uh, commandments and teaches other to do it, uh, but whoever practices and teaches these, he's talking about we are teachers. Okay, you might not have the title of teacher, but people are watching. Your life is a living lesson. And there are people who are watching you. And when they look your way, what are they learning when they watch you? When they watch the words that come out of your mouth, the conversations you're engaged in, your attitudes, your actions, your reactions, your behaviors. When someone just observes you, they are learning something. What do people learn when they look at you? Whether we like it or not, it's just true. Your life is a classroom. There are people constantly watching you. And I don't mean like in a voyeuristic, like stalker way. Our lives are loud. And people watch. And they are learning. And I guess the the, the follow-up question, when people watch, are they just learning more about you and your weirdness, your sinfulness, or are they just learning more about God in your life? That's the point. One way we live will lead people towards God, just in the way we talk. Attitudes, behaviors, all the things I mentioned. One way will lead towards God, will teach people about God, and one way will clearly say nothing about God. And so is your life saying something? It does say something. It's just a question of what it is actually saying. I love how Jesus makes pretty clear in this verse that practice precedes teaching. 
You see, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Meaning, to teach without, without actually living it, it's ultimately going to lead other people astray. Like, if I'm up here telling you these things and encouraging you to live in a way that leads people towards God, and then you see me out somewhere driving my car, flipping people off, cussing at the top of my head, smashed. Like, would you come back here next Sunday and be like, oh, Michael, tell us how to live for God again. (laughs) You wouldn't. Some of us teach, we say one thing, but our lives don't practice it. And Jesus just says, practice must precede your teaching. Live in a way that's actually in accordance with what you say. I mean, no one likes being called a hypocrite, right? I mean, if I just accused you, you accused me of being a hypocrite, it's not like, oh, well, thank you for that compliment. No one would say that. But Jesus makes just clear, practice must precede your teaching. Live in a way with, in accordance with the words that come out of your mouth. Question, what did Jesus say? was the greatest commandment. I alluded to it earlier. Greatest commandment, he just said, is just love God and love people. That actually sums up the entirety of the law. And so as I was thinking about this, Apostle Paul says this actually in Romans 13. I love this verse. This is Paul, okay? So you might be able to relate. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be. It's like, did you forget some other ones, Paul? Like, he's like, you know, do not murder, do not steal. I'm sure there's some other ones, but whatever the other commandments might be are summed up in the one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. When you love, and that's a summary statement of the totality of the law, you're pointing people towards God. So do you live a loving life? Because if you want to know how to sum up everything, tie the entire law together, Jesus does it for you. Love God and love people. We're going to get into this next week just because we're going to talk about hate. But we, we live in a world just that's so angry. That's people so frustrated, so bitter, so broken. What would it look like in your world, and I just mean our small little world where you hang out and reside in home, where you live in the workplace, what would it look like if you just started erring on the side of just loving? Every response you had, I'm just going to love that person. Yeah, they just flipped you off. Well, what would it look like for you just to love them? Be gracious towards people. Like, err on the side of not trying to get something from people, but love them. Why? Because that's a summary statement of the entire law. When you love, you're upholding the entire heart of the Old Testament. And I love the promise that Jesus gives at uh, the last part of verse 19. Whoever practices and teaches this will be called magos. That means great in God's kingdom. If you are a person who is practicing 
and teaching, meaning your life is leading people towards God just by the way you live. The words that come out of your mouth, the classroom called your life, the students who listen and watch, they're, they're coming to know God because of you. That's the promise. Whoever practices and teaches this will be called magos, great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, we'll finish with this. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, this would have flipped people upside down because the Pharisees, they were the elite of the elite. No one could compare with their righteousness. So for Jesus to say, like, if your righteousness is not even more than that, you're out. This is a hopeless statement. That's how it would have initially been understood and, and been heard. Like, wait a minute. I thought Jesus said, like, the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now my righteousness needs to be even greater than that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, uh, or I'm not getting into the kingdom of heaven. You can have two responses when you hear this passage. If you're like a crazy competitive person, raise your hand. Be the first, because if you're competitive, you want to be first and get your hand up first. All right, Mulvaney and Mike, I think I saw your hands shoot up first. So um, if you are a competitive person, you might hear verse 20 and be like, I can do it. <laughs> Bring it on. Because that's a challenge, right? If my righteousness needs to be greater than that of the Pharisees, bring it on. The problem, obviously, with that is, is, is many, but the hard thing with competitive people, and I'm a competitive person, is you tend to sometimes err on the side of performing for God, and that's what ultimately uh, the Pharisees were doing. And for the Pharisees, this was really just a, a journey towards legalism. Like those who are ultra-competitive, talking to myself, those are typically the people who err on the side of performing for God or becoming the legalistic individual. And ultimately, the Pharisees, they were not performing for God. They were performing for those who were watching them because they were so insecure with themselves that they needed the applause of other people to be impressed with, wow, you're phenomenal. Like, look at how good you look. You're, you're so impressive. In the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. Let me get my numbers right. 248 of them are positive. 365, meaning do this. 365 are considered negative, meaning don't do this. The Pharisees had them all memorized. They lived their life making sure that not one of the 613 laws would be ignored or neglected. That's how they lived. And what's interesting is the strongest words in the New Testament that Jesus spoke were to these guys, to the competitive, legalistic Pharisees, scribes, teachers. He went hard after them. And 
before I share something about them, I have to be honest, and I hope you'll be honest, there's a little Pharisee in us all. There's a little bit of a legalistic mentality, heart in each of us, that each of us needs to repent of being a legalist or being a Pharisee. And the, way, the reason I say that is because if we're legalistic people, it gives us a sense of control. Like it gives us a sense of entitlement. I did this, so therefore I deserve this. This is the Santa syndrome. I was a good kid, I get good gifts. They were a bad kid, they get squat. That's what legalism does in our relationship with God. I've been really good. I haven't sinned over here, I haven't done this. I haven't been great over here, but we find a way to justify it. But we just have this relationship with God where he owes us something because I've performed for him. And especially as we're getting started, just know that Jesus didn't come, was not sent to create a community of legalists, of performers. He came and gave his life that we might have our lives conform to him. That our ultimate goal would not to one-up one another and look better than the guy, the woman sitting next to you. Jesus came so that we'd look like him. The Pharisees, this is, um, this is Matthew 23. Jesus goes to town on the Pharisees. These are just excerpts. For they do not practice what they preach. Everything they do is done for men to see. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. Woe to you, blind guides, blind fools, blind men. He's actually talking to them. They're not like in the room over there. Okay? You blind guides, hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside, full of greed, self-indulgence. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. You are like This is one of Jesus' strongest statements. Whitewashed tomb. You know what a whitewashed tomb is? You ever been to a graveyard? There's tombs that look sweet. I mean, they they look phenomenal. I mean, they just, they're like, wow. Someone must, important, really be right there. They're still dead. Okay? The outside looks great. Like, looks really sharp. Looks beautiful but you're still dead. That's what Jesus says. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. The call for righteousness to exceed That of the Pharisees is not a call to look like them. It's a call to look like Jesus. These guys had the appearance of being righteous, but what Jesus is getting at with us, I don't care about the appearance. How's your heart? How is your soul? Anyone can look good on the outside. Any one of us, no matter how jacked up you are, you can still put on a good show. You can still put on a good appearance that your life is together, your marriage is together, your relationship with your kids is together, your friendships are together, but inside you're dying. Any one of us can put on a show. Jesus doesn't want your show. He doesn't want my show. A righteousness 
that supersedes is greater than that of the Pharisees that Jesus is talking about is a righteousness that comes from Jesus into us that creates in us a person who looks like him, where our hearts, our motives are completely changed. There's a story of a guy who had every right to brag. He was it. Like if anyone was going to brag about how righteous they were, how good they were, they had their stuff together, it was this guy. Like he was an impressive, he was just impressive. Just looking at him, he was an impressive guy. You ever see how sometimes people who are the most impressive are actually just blind people? They just can't ultimately see what they really look like because they're blinded by their own beauty, as it were. And so this guy was so impressed with himself that God struck him with blindness so he could not see. If you haven't figured out, I'm talking about Paul. You ever wonder why, of all the things that Jesus could have done to get his attention, he blinded him? Sometimes we need to be blinded so we stop looking at ourselves. Stop looking at how sharp we look. This is the story of Paul. He's blinded by God and for a few days has this incredible interaction with Jesus. And this is Paul looking backwards, so to speak, towards the end of his life. It says in Philippians chapter 3, If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, I'm a, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee, as far as zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. This is a resume to die for if you're a Pharisee. Like his credentials were just off the charts. But then he says this, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Imagine getting towards the end of your life and saying, you know what? Wasted. I was so impressed with myself. How I looked, how I performed, how people thought of me. He just says, you know, for what? Rubbish. A waste. Jesus. That's it. That's what Paul's conclusion ultimately was. Knowing Jesus is the only thing that matters. It doesn't matter where I was born, what tribe I'm from, how, how much zeal I have, how much of a legalistic I... Do I know Jesus? That was Paul's ultimate conclusion. Jesus, when he says your righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees to enter into the kingdom of God, please know that this is not a works salvation that Jesus is talking about. He's going to the heart. Notice, he didn't say the Pharisees were in. They're left standing out. A righteousness that surpasses them is an inward righteousness, the Beatitudes. Keep in mind, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are spiritually bankrupt, 
got to the end of themselves and have nothing to offer to God. Let me finish with uh, this last question, as if I haven't asked you enough. Will you be content with external appearance? Or would you be willing to begin pressing into something far greater? I wasted so much of my life and so much of my walk with God trying to perform for Him, thinking I'm a good kid, I don't do certain things that certain people do, read my Bible, pray. Like I was just impressed with my little resume. Like I was satisfied for the external. And Jesus is saying there's just something far greater than the external. A heart transformation where you're just cut to the heart. And it's not so much about you and what you look like. It's about what Jesus is doing and creating in you. One of the Old Testament, to put some Old Testament scripture in here. This is a promise from God to us. Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Not show, not external, written deep on the soul of who you are. God's law written on your mind, implanted in your heart so that you will know who your God is and you will worship Him and you will love Him alone. Ezekiel says this, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's a great promise, a gift from God that is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. A question that I often ask myself and ask a lot of the guys that I spend time with is how godly do you want to be? Like, do you really want to be a godly man? There's lots of guys who know how to be guys. There's lots of guys who know how to have a version of what it means to be a man. But there's not many men who know how to be a godly man. Women, do you really want to be a godly woman? Where your identity, your security, your worth, your value, your significance, identity has nothing to do with what you look like. It has everything to do that God's declared you that you are my daughter. And I love you, despite the immature men who make you feel like you've got to look like something. Like, do you want to be a godly woman or just a woman who settles for everything on the flesh? The righteousness that Jesus calls us to have is a righteousness from Him. It's not external, it's internal. It's not a show, it's not appearance. It's something where God just transforms you, your heart. We're going to continue this morning just in worship. And I would uh, just beg you what God has been speaking to you uh, just through His Word uh, to respond.
And I'm going to venture that there might be a handful of us who just need to say, wow, I just need to repent of my junk, my sin. Die to the external appearance of wanting to look like I got my, my stuff together. And beg God and ask God, give me that new heart that will transform me from the inside out, not the outside in. So God, would you do what only you can do? Would you do a work of the heart? Jesus, I give you thanks that you did not call us to just external appearance where we have just our stuff together, or so it appears to the world that watches. But you call us to something far deeper, far just more meaningful than that. God, if there's just anyone in here who's just struggling with that very question of just living for the external, God, I just pray you would meet them today in this place at this moment. Do a work in their heart where there would just be repentance, a turning from self and a turning to you, Jesus. And God, if there's anyone in here today that has spent a better part of their life thinking that uh, we might earn something, that we can earn salvation uh, from just being a good person, I pray that would be repented of today. And God, if there is anyone in here who has yet to cry out and confess Jesus, you as God, let that happen today in this place. As you guys are ready, uh, we're going to worship and we're going to celebrate communion. And we celebrate communion because we love Jesus and um, we want to remember that Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilled all of the Old Testament. Um, and ultimately, it's Jesus who brings us into right relationship with God. Went to a cross, paid the penalty for your sin, for my sin, that those who would come and confess him as Savior and Lord would have mercy, forgiveness of sins, and eternal life. If you are a Christian and have confessed Jesus as your God, come and take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or juice and say, Thank you. Jesus, I remember what you've done. Continue to work in me so that I look more like you, not like anyone else. If you're not a Christian, make the decision today. Confess Jesus as your God. Ask him to forgive you for sin and come celebrate communion for the first time.